Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sekum speaks to Justice Malala about the future of politics across local and global stages. Hello and welcome to the PSG Think Big series, a collection of dialogues with leading speakers that aims to bring its audiences independent insights on some of our country's most pressing issues. The social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG and because the series is free, shareable, open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not, feel free to keep the conversation going on the various social media platforms. In today's session, we're catching up once again with Justice Malala. Since 2018, Justice has split his time between the United States and South Africa, giving him added global perspective on local issues. So we're looking at the future of politics across local and global stages today. For those of you who don't already know Justice, he's a renowned political commentator and newspaper columnist. He writes weekly for both the Financial Mail and Times Live and contributes regularly to international publications like the Washington Post, the UK's Financial Times and The Guardian. He is the author of the number one South African bestseller, We've now begun our descent, and his new book about South Africa's transition to democracy is set to be published in 2023. Justice, thanks so much for joining us today. And if anything, South Africa's political and broader socioeconomic landscape, giving you lots to write about, you said before that South Africa's takeoff was tougher and longer than many had anticipated, but that we were getting somewhere. Given all that's played out since your last book, since your last conversation on this series, surely South Africa is sitting now a lot more vulnerable to local and global turbulence. Oh, absolutely it has. But, I, you know, before we go on to the, that turbulence that you speak about, Alicia, and thank you for having me on the, on the program. It's always nice to engage with your all the people who uh, uh, come on to and, and engage with all of us and the speakers. But one of the things for me is there are two markers that you, you've set down. And the first marker is, um, is uh, the release of my book, 2016, 2015, 2016, and what it was like then and what it is like uh, seven years later, here we are in 2022. Um, I think if you take that as an environment as the first marker, South Africa is way, way better, in a way better place than it was then. And, and I'm referring particularly to state capture, to uh, the fact that at that point, at that time, you would not see a cabinet minister, for example, appearing in, in court, um, charged with all kinds of uh, skullduggery and wrongdoing. You would not, at that point, have any faith in the NPA, uh, the South African Revenue Service was right in the middle of, uh, of its capture and so forth and so forth. Now you have heads of, formerly of Transnet, head of, uh, heads of formerly of uh, ESCOM and so forth. So many people um, appearing uh, in court, being held to account um, and being given a chance to say, no, I didn't do this. You have to prove it. And, and, and showing that they are, they are innocent of the charges against them. So against that marker, um, Alicia, I have to say, I'm, I'm pleased we're making some progress. I think the aftermath post the release of the Zondo Commission report, 
I'm, I, I would say we're, we're not in a good place, but we're definitely making small little steps forward that, that give me hope that we we on um, on a better trajectory. Do you see that more so, Justice, as you straddle your time between the U.S. and South Africa? You know, seeing that uh, perhaps we aren't as alone in it all as we might think. I mean, while you seeing the silver linings at this point, others there out there are saying it's time to stop taking the glass half full view. Um, I, I think. The one, the one thing I'm grateful for about, about, about having this dual view, being here right now and seeing South Africa from uh, the load shedding and from all the other negative uh, uh, issues that we, we will discuss today. Um, I have to say that it does give you perspective that says, wow, we are in, we are in trouble but look at the rest of the world. And, and my take on it is that actually we're not just subject to what is going on in South Africa, we're subject to global forces and some of those global forces are that essentially South Africa, the world is going through a transition. That transition is characterized by what we people like me uh, have grown up with over the past 30 years, um, we uh, largely, I am a child of the Cold War and, and the Cold War dominated South Africa's view and the world's view of where we stood, whether in, in global politics and so forth. So the collapse of the, of the, uh, the wall that separated East and West Germany the ushering in the collapse of the USSR, the ushering in of a liberal democracy across the globe was the post-1994 narrative. Uh, Nelson Mandela came out of jail in 1990. Uh, Francis Fukuyama said, this is the end of history. And there we were, all of us, it was, well, uh, liberal democracy has triumphed and so forth and so forth. That idea is, is being challenged all across the globe now, um, Russia is saying, well, you know, what kind of a global architecture are you talking about? It doesn't include us. China is saying, well, is that really what you're about when you caused so many wars and, and, and incursions into Iraq and so forth and so forth. And so, and so those ideas are being challenged. Um, and I think South Africa is pretty much in the same wave the idea of a post-1994 democracy is being challenged. That we've had, we had 10 years of state capture, 10 years of people who wanted monopoly over power. And so, and so all those certainties, as it were, are being challenged. And yeah. they're being challenged here. They're being challenged uh, all over Europe. The idea of a Europe that is uh, united under the, the umbrella of the EU is being challenged. The USSR and, and China challenging uh, uh, many of these uh, received wisdoms. And so, and so someone used the, uh, um, the expression polycrisis and, and, and it refers to the fact that, you know, post the, 19, the 2020 pandemic, we faced with the war in the Ukraine the rise of fascism in many parts of Europe, um, our own struggles here and so forth. So there's a shift. 
And I think South Africa is part of that of that transition. And in that transition, absolutely. you have that morbidity coming for you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to the detail of you know, our position on that global stage in just a bit. Uh, before we do, much of our capability, Justice, in countering the headwinds and getting the country going, hinging on political machinations. And ironically, the country being thrust into darkness is what's cast the light even more so on the fact that change needs to happen and happen fast if we're going to get anywhere, even if slowly. We had a former president, Khalema Matante, on the last episode saying that the ANC's heard the alarm that's been sounded, that a change in leadership is afoot, a renewal is on the cards. Are you convinced? I'm not totally convinced. I think that the, the NC is an animal that has been uh, um, running for, for quite a while. It's got momentum. That momentum, unfortunately, includes um, a usage of state resources for its own enrichment and its, its, its leaders' and, uh, enrichment and empowerment. Um, I think that if I were to have some criticism of Cyril Ramaphosa, I think I think the failure to deal decisively, swiftly with these challenges over the past four and a half years. Remember that it's been nearly five years in December that Cyril Ramaphosa has been at the helm of the ANC. And, and I haven't certainly, uh, I haven't seen the kind of speed, the kind of uh, resoluteness mm -hmm. that needed to, to achieve the results that he aims to achieve. But, but you know, Let's just step back a bit. What are the problems? The problems are a massive, huge, catastrophic youth unemployment, um, an economy that, uh, that has hundreds of thousands of kids coming into the system um, every year, and that's growing at around 1%. And so you have to ask yourself, what exactly are we doing here? Because what we are doing is adding on to the tensions that could lead to what we saw in July last year. Um, we don't talk about it enough. The fact that 354 people died, um, 161 shopping malls, uh, the billions and billions of rent uh, in destruction that was caused. So, so I, don't, I don't feel, and I, I, would, I would disagree with uh, uh, former President Mutante, um, I don't think it's been heard, and, and, and we can talk about this, about electoral politics themselves. I think that perhaps the warning bell will really be heard if we do have a movement, a, a change uh, at the very top uh, of, of our politics. And that's, and, that's, and that's exactly uh, what I was going to ask you. Uh, you know, uh, we've learned that hearing the alarm is one thing, rearranging the deck chairs under the guise of a renewal is another. But the real question is, are we actually going to see implementation and enforcement of the new rules of engagement that will actually shift the way the country is governed as a result? So with the stakes as high as they are, Justice, let's just cut to the chase here. Does current President Sol Ramaphosa master enough support to get re-elected a second term? He'll master enough support. <laughs> you know, we talk about certain uncertainty and instability. There are two elections actually that are going on. First one, the, his first hurdle is the ANC internal election. And then there's the 2024 election. Um, can we call 2024? It's, uh, it, it, it's still a bit uh, way out. 
um, in, in a few months, in a couple of months, we'll have the ANC uh, election. At the moment, and things change very fast, um, I think that the jeopardy uh, that, that he faces is the Palapala uh, farm scandal and whether that triggers a step aside uh, for him. But, but at the moment, he's got the support of Limpopo, the Free State, I'm sorry, uh, the Northern Cape, Gauteng, uh, uh, um, Pumalanga, all these provinces stepping up and saying, oh, we, we think he'll be okay and so forth. It will be up to the branches, but I think, I think at the moment, I would say Cyril Ramaphosa is looking good, but, but I don't know enough and not many of us know enough about what actually happened with the Palapala uh, uh, farm uh, robbery to the extent that if there is any kind of movement by law enforcement agencies, you, you know, it's hard to speculate given the paucity of information that we have. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult. Absolutely. But let's run with that for a minute, right? With that hypothetical that triggers a step aside scenario here. And of course, this is all hypothetical. Who in the ANC would be a viable successor? Well, <laughs> it's viable to me and viable to you may not be viable to the ANC members. There are people lining up who want to do it. I would say, so let's see, let's say Ramaphosa has to step aside. If Ramaphosa has to step aside, remember then Zulim Kize would have to step aside, would have to step aside if charges are brought uh, against him around the, uh, um, around the digital vibe scandal. So actually two of the top runners would be out of play. Ngosa um, Zanazamini Zuma has said she's, uh, she'd like to she's put her hand up. Um, I don't think, I think that what we've seen over the past few uh, uh, weeks is essentially the end of the Zuma dynasty in the ANC. I think that ANC uh, delegates have rejected one, the influence of Jacob Zuma on the ANC, and two, uh, the attempt for, by him to influence uh, who gets chosen as the leader. And so I would, I would say she'll run, but she won't make it. Um, the one person who I believe would step up uh, is the current Treasurer General of the ANC, Paul Mashatile, who has been across the board. It, uh, that part of the race, we can shut down. So, uh, he's definitely going to be the Deputy President of the ANC. And if the scenario you paint comes through, Paul Mashatile, in my view, would be elevated to presidency of the ANC. And the question would then be, what kind of policy would you hold? Or what kind of direction would you push? Um, he has been very interesting in policy terms. If you look at uh, his pronouncements on land, uh, saying section 25 of the constitution, yeah. don't change that. We can use the expropriation bill, which has just gone through parliament uh, to achieve our, our ends. If you take for people in financial services, and you say prescription, um, um, essentially saying to uh, asset managers funds that will take so much of your uh, fund for infrastructure development and so forth. He said, well, you can't force people to do that. You're, you're interfering with the market in a particular way. He's been very interesting in the, in the business friendly manner that he has steered, mm -hmm. that he has pronounced around policy you know, key policy issues, the, the central bank, and he said the, the Reserve Bank does a great job 
that the mandate is fine. Uh, why should we be, why should we be interfering? State Bank, he's pronounced on that. He's not, he's, he hasn't been afraid to actually step up and say, these are the key things and these are the things that we should be moving on and these are not the things that... So in policy terms, I would say, I would say Paul Marshatilo would actually not be a bad choice for the ANC. Whether he's got the popular, uh, the, he can attract the popular vote in 2024 to mitigate against the ANC's very bad press um, is another thing altogether. Absolutely, especially when he comes up against a force of radical economic transformation within the grouping as well, right? So we explored that scenario within the ANC itself. Uh, do you think the political opposition is prepared for an ANC that achieves less than 50% of the vote in 2024? And where would that leave some of these uh, or some of this policy agenda? <laughs> um, I, think, I think the opposition in a way knows what it doesn't want but doesn't know what it wants. Um, and we've seen this with what's been happening with the coalition agreements in Nelson Mandela Bay, uh, the city of Johannesburg, uh, the most high profile. You have a situation where it's, we don't want the ANC, we don't want to work with these guys. And then when you have to craft an, an agenda and a way to stay stable over, over time, um, this is where they failed. And, and I think recent developments in our politics are really uh, heartbreaking for, for, for voters because a lot of people would have chosen an alternative to the ANC, voted for it and said, well, even if you're I'm a voter DA and they work with Action SA and the IFP, at least these guys can form something. The collapse and high profile collapses like we've seen in the city of Joburg leads to a certain um, uh, disgruntlement with the political establishment. Uh, uh, so what's happened now is that people will be asking themselves, do I, should I be voting for a small party? Um, what's the point? Because they're going to collapse the coalition. Um, do coalitions actually work? And coalitions have worked in many other parts of the world. And oh no, maybe it's not worth it. Coalitions don't work and so forth and so forth. So in terms of moving our voters to a certain, uh, a new way of thinking and voting, I think it's been very damaging uh, what we've seen uh, in recent times. Um, but I think that it can still be cobbled together, a coalition, um, access, but, but I think that, I don't think it's going to be 2024 happens and we have coalitions and it's all yeah. over. I think the transition, uh, Alicia, will continue in the sense that we'll have about another five years of settling in, if you will, and maybe 2029 is when the opposition will know and the opposition will include the ANC in the sense that here in the city of Johannesburg in Gauteng, the ANC will, without a shadow of doubt, be in the opposition benches. And so the ANC will have to rethink how it works with the EFF, with the IFP, or whoever else it needs to form a coalition. So it's going to be interesting times and very uncertain times as well.
Absolutely. But, but where we're talking now about collapses, about damages, but perhaps, uh, you know, one that needs uh, more than just a cobbling together of solutions, right? We've got the country's energy policy, the big, the big one right now. It could well force a crash landing. How much of the solution, Justice, comes with the most recent overhaul we've seen of the ESCOM board? I think it's a beginning. I mean, I would have started at the top. I am a, uh, among the people that I think kept their integrity through the state capture years is Pavin Gordon. And I have a lot of time for him despite his many uh, challenges and, and, and uh, uh, setbacks that he's had. However, for him to sit and say, I'm reconstituting the board of ESCOM, and for the Minister of Energy, Guadamantasha, to sit and say, oh, yes, that, this is what we're doing, new board, new people, and so forth. I think it's, it, it should have started with the two of them. They could have sat there and said, it's not our fault. We got here when the problem was already here. But because we've been overseeing this for four years, we are going to say we are stepping down with the board. So I think our solutions have a problem already that we are saying um, uh, Busima Vuso, who was on the board and that, that stepped down, um, must take some responsibility. But the, the people who appointed her um, are not taking any responsibility whatsoever. There's no action whatsoever. And they're continuing as if it's okay. I think that's a, that's a fundamental flaw in what we're doing. We need, we need, if there's going to be a clean sweep, it should have started at the political heads and then followed with the board. I yeah, think where we need political solutions, where we don't need political solutions to this mess, we need business solutions, right? Exactly. So, so at the moment, the pressure is on the executive management. I would say, leave those people alone, let them do the work that they've been that they've been set, uh, set to do. I, I do think some of the reforms have been fantastic, uh, but time again, it's just taken too long for, for us to implement the, the, um, the policies around renewables, the decision to, uh, by the president to overrule Greta Mantasha and say, we're going to allow people to uh, generate uh, uh, themselves. I think these are really positive steps. We just have to buckle down and say it's going to take some time before we get to, uh, to a situation where we don't have the kind of uh, 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 blackouts that we're seeing at the moment. It's, 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 Cyril Ramaphosa is correct. It's a three to five year, maybe a bit longer. Uh, it's not ideal, uh, but at least we're beginning to say this is the problem and this is how it's solved. It's a start. Uh, in, the, in, in the interim though, Justice, we have South Africa entering a period of intense political volatility against a backdrop of local economic turmoil, but then also increasingly uncertain um, global economics, right? Where spiraling economic stagnation for one is a real threat. What risk of an Arab Spring scenario are you pricing in? That, that's, a, that, that's a very serious question. That's a very important question. Um, I think South Africa, Tabum Beki spoke about the Arab Spring and, and suddenly it came back and it's there. But we've had one. We, we had July last year. Um, 
And, and I sometimes stop and say, do, do we really see that we are in trouble? So we, we were in trouble before where we are today. Part of what happened last year, we didn't have bread riots, we didn't have Arab Spring riots, but we, those riots were fueled by the fact that you have these young people out on the street, by the fact that you have the inequality we have, uh, the fact that we don't have jobs for these young people. The chances of uh, implosion are, are high because of these two factors, unemployment, inequality, um, mm. political machinations. I think the fact that the ANC is still divided right down the middle. Remember that the trigger for what happened in July last year was the incarceration of Jacob Zuma. Um, around his incarceration, people started saying, well, let our men go. And that triggered, that was the, the match that was thrown into the tinder and that's, that set it off. I fear that the, the divisions within the ANC could once again be used and to trigger, to put that match to that tinder that we have. And so I, I would say we need to be very, very careful. We need to be uh, watchful. Uh, I think that the failure in intelligence gathering last year should not be allowed to happen again because we are, with all the pressures that you, you, you've mentioned, we are mm. very close to that kind of scenario. Next winter, yeah. with all those challenges, all of them hitting against each other and the challenges in energy that you speak about would be, for me, a major area of concern. So let's take all of that now and consider new geopolitical lines being drawn on the world map and the continent being seen as an area that needs to be influenced toward a particular alignment. Justice with politics in a state of flux impacting the socio-economic climate as we've highlighted. How much more susceptible is South Africa to influence and being pulled to a particular side in what's been labeled now the new Cold War? Yeah, um, South Africa is very susceptible. Um, we are living through an age of huge misinformation, disinformation. Um, we've had uh, in South Africa visits by uh, the US Secretary of State just recently. We've had uh, Sergei Lavrov of Russia visiting uh, the DRC, other parts of the continent. Um, Russian leaders have not visited largely because of uh, COVID-19 protocols in their country, but you've seen a, a huge uh, influx of, um, of global players coming to South Africa, wanting to be part of this. Uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa invited to the White House, giving a tour, uh, a, a very unique tour by Biden, Joe Biden through uh, the East Wing of the, of the White House, something that doesn't happen uh, with many, many heads of state. Uh, we're seeing our president invited as the first uh, guest of, um, of uh, the King of England, the new King of England, and so forth and so forth. So I, I think that we are going to see uh, a huge amounts of um, come to me, come to me from, from the East, from the West, um, 
from all sorts of places. I think this is a time for Africa and South Africa to really be clear about what's, what's our strategy, what are our policy imperatives, what are our needs? Because in this situation, we could end up being, oh, we're getting some infrastructure development from China, and so we follow that line. Oh, oh you know, we're getting some uh, uh, thing, nice things being dangled in our faces by uh, the United States, and we, we rush that way. It's going to be absolutely pivotal for, for our leaders to, to think through what it is that Africa needs. And, and I fear that sometimes we don't, we don't do that enough. We don't say our priorities are young people, unemployment, uh, economic growth, which has been stuttering for, for years and years. And so, and so it's going to be, we're going to have to define ourselves within that polarized world, within that environment and say, things are moving fast, but this is our true north and we're going for it. And, and African yeah. leaders to define that true north. What a time for South Africa to be taking over uh, the rotating leadership uh, at the BRICS Bank, uh, right? So how do you see all of this impacting something like that, a structure like the BRICS Bank? The BRICS Bank has always been a political uh, force. There's always been uh, a yearning um, among developing countries, among, among countries that are not part of the so-called Bretton Woods institutions to kind of build something alternative. I think it's going to become even more political. So, so South Africa taking over that seat becomes a very, very political uh, move. Uh, 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 that tenure will be right in the middle of this transition and the crises that the world is going through. Um, President Cyril Ramaphosa and whoever else comes after him, um, we, we're going to have to negotiate a very, fraught terrain. And, and once again, for me, it would be, who are you and what do you want? Uh, not, oh, I'm following on, I'm hanging on to the coattails of this or that player, because doing that, we will find ourselves making choices that we don't need to make. Uh, we'll find ourselves being very emotional uh, instead, instead of being very uh, um, cool, calm, and clear about what South Africa needs to do. Our problems, uh, Alicia, are, our problems are our problems. We need to solve them. Uh, we cannot continue, which has been the norm for a very long time in South Africa, to, to say, oh, you know, our problems are from there and we'll go with that player and that global player um, in order to solve them. This is the time when South Africa, again and again, needs to be saying, we as South Africans, have these needs and these young people to service. And this is what we want. Um, without that clarity of thought, um, in an in a environment which you rightly uh, uh, um, analyzed as being so fraught with crises, with challenges, and challenges that will come all at the same time. It don't be, oh, we have, you know, COVID pandemic coming this way. It will be, there's this pandemic, there's a war, there's shortages in uh, uh, energy, in oil and gas, there are uh, logistical problems that are, you know, throwing uh, the world into, into all kinds of, of problems. And, and that is when we need to be clear about what it is we want. And, 
And I think the key thing here is that for a long time we haven't done that and we need to do it now. So, Justice, before I let you go, your next book scheduled for release uh, next year focuses on action that threatened to derail South Africa's democratic transition, right? Now, as things stand, what's the road ahead looking like for you as the benefits of that post-1990 liberal world order are being brought to question? I think the key thing, and, and thank you for mentioning my book, it, it's really about, about leadership in a time like this, in a time of huge crisis, and, and, and what happens to those leaders. My book is about uh, a challenge that Nelson Mandela faced. Uh, it's about April 10, 1993, when uh, Chris Hani was murdered, and, and South Africa was on the brink of uh, of war. Uh, you, you talk about an Arab Spring. At that time, South Africa was angry. Nelson Mandela and FW Duterte did several things. And one of those is cooperation between two leaders who are on opposite sides of the political divide. And they reached out to each other and said, what do we do? Mandela was not president, Duterte was, was president. Mandela had legitimacy, Duterte did not have legitimacy. So in that environment, you see how leadership is really what's needed at times like this. Leadership that says, these are big strategic goals. Let's get to those and let's not be distracted by the noise. This period in many ways is not one uh, big issue happening. It's a multiplicity of challenges that, are, that, are, um, that leaders are up against, that all of us are up against. And I think this is a time to be like Mandela, to be like those leaders in 1993, 94, who said, yes, there are all these challenges, there's all this political noise, there is so much, and there is anger and impatience. And yet, let's not forget what we're doing here. And this is what we're doing. We need an election date. We need a new constitution. Let's put that on the table. And they got that. I think the turbulence of the next two years uh, and possibly the next five years will require that kind of leadership, uh, will require our leaders to really dig deep uh, and, find, and find a way through this. Um, um, it will require ordinary people and business people uh, to do the same thing. Um, but I believe that we can do it and, and we should do it. We have, no, we have no alternative, we have no choice but to do it. Justice, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, for being with us in conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and to our viewers. Thanks for watching. Remember, the webinar will be available via podcast. We welcome your feedback as always. So please communicate with us and look out for the next speaker in the Think Big series. From me, Alicia Seckham, it's bye for now.